You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. everybody, welcome to the Thesis on Joan podcast. I'm Holly, they, them. And I'm Megan, she, her. Thesis on Joan is a bi-weekly podcast dedicated to amplifying voices from the LGBTQ plus community in the New York performing arts scene and examining the industry from a queer perspective. Join me and Holly, fan queers and theater professionals, as we sit down with groundbreaking theater folk from Brooklyn cabaret performers to people backstage and on Broadway. For many queers, theater has been an escape. This podcast looks to have open conversations on where we've come from and where we're headed as a community while queering the canon along the way. Today we're sitting down with C.A. Johnson. C.A. Johnson hails from Metairie, Louisiana, but currently lives and writes in Queens, New York. Her plays include All the Natalie Portmans, Thirst, The Climb, An American Feast, and I Know, I Know, I Know. She is currently the Toe Playwright-in-Residence at MCC Theater and a core writer at the Playwright Center. She was previously the 2018 P73 Playwriting Fellow, the Larks 2016-17 to Van Leer Fellow, a Dramatist Guild Fellow, a member of the Civilians R&D Group, a member of the Working Farm at Space on Rider Farm, a Sundance U-Cross Fellow, and a 2018 Sundance Theater Lab Fellow. In addition to her theater work, CA also writes for television. Uh, BA from Smith College and MFA from NYU. Hey, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> oh, oh my God. <laughs> this is your life, CA. <laughs> I know. I've never heard it lifted out in that way. It seems like a lie. I might be lying. <laughs> <laughs> we don't do a lot of fact checking, so it's okay. <laughs> Yeah, let's go with it. Seems great to us. <laughs> um, before we get into the rest of our questions, would you mind just sharing your name, pronouns, and anything else about how you identify? Mm-hmm. Uh, hi, I'm C.A. Johnson. Um, I use she, her, hers. Uh, and, you know, I identify as a crazy human. <laughs> <laughs> no answer has been the same to that question. And it's I great. love it so much. <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> so the MCC run of all your play, all the Natalie Portmans, was cut mm-hmm. short due to COVID nineteen. Uh, very sad. For yes. anyone that doesn't know, can you tell us what that play is about? For sure. Um, I feel like I've always, if I had to give an elevated pitch on this play, I would fail. But um, I'll try to do it as succinctly as I know how. Um, all the Natalie Portmans. At its core is a play about a family on the brink of eviction. Um, if I had to sell it that way, I'd say that. But I, I think uh, really it's a play about a 16-year-old girl in a family that's had to juggle way too much. Um, and while she and her brother are trying to solve very adult problems, she's also trying to figure out who she is. And I think that for Kiana, the main character, that's both about you know, how to be a kid in a family that's strapped for money. It's also about how to be a young queer woman in a family that doesn't really know what that means. It's also about how to love movies when those movies don't always love you back. Um, it's about so many things, but I think at its core, it's like, here's a girl having to act like an adult because of, you know, the problems the world has saddled her with. And, you know, is she going to survive this play? Is she going to survive this play intact or is she going to survive it, uh, 
with some holes in her soul. <laughs> Let's all sit down and find out. Um, <laughs> it's not quite an elevated pitch because it's about so many things, I think. Um, but, you know, that's that's as close as I'm going to get. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. And CA, thanks for sharing the play with us. I know that we were both really excited to see it and sad that we didn't get the opportunity. And just reading it, I'm like, oh, I cannot wait until I get to see a production of this so soon. And yeah. yeah. Fingers That's crossed. Tough. Yes, fingers crossed. That yeah. what. What's it been like since it ended? I feel like that's the, what we just asked you is probably the question that everyone's asking you. And yeah. uh, what's it like to kind of have that moment define like what the last three, four months have been? Yeah. I mean, you know, I'll, I'll start by saying that I'm, I'm more fortunate than a lot of other teams and plays that were on their way. Um, you know, I, I was at MCC next door to Nollywood Dreams by Jocelyn Bio, and, you know, they were just about to walk into the theater and start tech and the world close. And, you know, we, um, the team of all Natalie Portman was, was lucky in that we almost made it through our entire initial run. So we did, I think we got out like 20 performances. Um, and we had three more before our extension began. So, there were some real ways that we had, you know, we got, we made it all the way through previews. We had our big opening night in our party. Mm-hmm. Um, and the actors were settling into like life without me and the director watching their every move. So it was, <laughs> um, we had, we'd gotten a decent chunk of work done and then it was just theirs to grow and let bloom. Um, and so I feel like when, you know, Queen Corona showed up and <laughs> told us all what was what. Uh, I, my initial reaction when MCC sort of let me and the team know that that night was going to be our final performance, March 12th. Oh my gosh. It was sad, but I'm not going to lie. I did breathe a sigh of relief. Um, mm-hmm. only because I so, so, so loved that team of people and I, was so proud of and protective of that cast that I was a little worried about us, you know, for the sake of art and for the sake of uh, capitalism, um, trying to keep them on a stage in, in a world that wasn't quite safe. You know, I was like, I mean, we all know what the theater audience is, the average theater audience. Um, and I'm like asking them to like breathe and cry and hold one another every night for two plus hours. I was like, no, that doesn't feel right. And so I, I felt some relief because I thought it was the right call. Um, but at the same time, you know, a theatrical run. And I mean, this was my first, I've had two productions before all the Natalie Portman's, but they were both out of town. I'd never done the New York thing, which is its own beast, but I also hadn't for both those processes. I wasn't, um, lucky enough to be in the room the whole time and for every step of it. So with all Natalie Portman's, I'd been there for every single choice, you know what I mean? And so that journey of, you know, rehearsals and reviews until you do it all together and you know the end goal, you know when it's going to be over so you can pace your emotions. <laughs> um, and suddenly we had to speed through that last half of the emotions. And that was a bit rough because I was like, oh, I'm so relieved that the actors will be safe. Oh, I have to say goodbye to them now because who knows when I'm going to see them again. And we've all built these deep bonds. And that was hard. Um you know, the night of closing, there were a lot of tears. Um, but there was also so much love from them, from all the folks at MCC, from that final audience who we invited to stay afterwards because we threw a little closing party with some champagne and toast. Oh, wow. And we were like, just stick around. Who knows when any of us will be outdoors again? Uh, um, and so it, it was celebratory and also terrible. <laughs> yeah. And any, you know, the other piece of it is, it's theater. There are those who know about it and those who don't. And so it takes a while for word to spread. And I had so many friends who aren't frequent to the theater, but who love me, who weren't going to make it until the last two weeks anyway. <laughs> so many theater friends who were busy with their own shows or busy with their own lives. And they were like, yeah, I'll be there closing week. And I was like, yeah, see you then. And like all of those people didn't get to see it. And that is sad for the reasons that are like, my friends didn't see it, but also... You know, I, that play is so near and dear to my heart and Kiana's journey in the play is so 
near and dear to my weird queer self. And I think the best audiences I had were when I'd look around and there was some lady with dyed hair crying and I was like, I see you girl. I know. <laughs> I see you. You look like you were in the murmurs. I know, I know you. Um, and it was like, and those were, um, I, I am sad that more, you know, more of my people didn't get into the room because I knew I was going to get that first guard of all the theater folks, but all those theater folks weren't necessarily who I wrote it for. You know, I wrote it for its sad queers who watched movies about women who didn't want them. Um, <laughs> and I was like, I'll feel satisfied when they show up when they're like me too, girl. And I'm like, yes, okay, let's have the conversation. And I, I have a fear that, you know, a lot of those people who only would have known about the show through word of mouth didn't quite make it there. And that, that was rough. That was rough. I'm trying to deal with that in whatever way I can. But, you know, I'm trying to be positive. It's like every player right is too queer for its own good. So hopefully. No such thing. <laughs> <laughs> Never be queer enough. Yeah. <laughs> is there any chance or do you know of any, like, whisperings of if it can come back? No, I haven't heard anything. Yeah. Um, you know, it, I think it would probably be a different story if, you know, the production had been chopped in half on the third preview, but mm-hmm. we had a, we had a full run. So mm-hmm. it is like a, um, um, who, who knows? I don't know the future. Um, and I mean, we don't even know what theater is going to be on the other side of this thing. So who knows if somebody calls me up and goes crazy idea and I'll be like, absolutely original cast only, you know, that would be amazing for us to get in another ride. I also think we were still learning things about that play. I mean, I've already rewritten bits of it since. So it's like wow. a, I mean, I'd love it, honestly. <laughs> but we'll, we'll see, you know. Yeah, 20 performances is like, it's not, in the grand scheme of things, it's not that many. You know, no. it's like, I know it's a lot of what your run was, but still like so much can change. <laughs> yes, after that. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, they were still finding so many new emotional moments some of my favorite scenes were just starting to really lock in mm-hmm. like I was like oh man they're nailing it and I was like oh it's over and I was like oh man <laughs> they just nailed it <laughs> and then that will come back whenever this is over yeah, yeah. was there a recording of it not one that I think is uh public <laughs> you know yeah you know, theaters do a bunch of tapings for B-roll and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Um, but I don't, we didn't do one that was formally like, this is the one that we will share with A, B, and C. Um, so I don't, who knows what's going to happen with that taping. Um, but I know, like I heard of other productions where when they figured out that there was their last go of it, they were, they recorded that weekend. Yeah. Um, which I think is so smart. And so on it, I don't think we were that smart or that on it. <laughs> I wish we were. No one was taking it that seriously because I, I was working on a show that had just opened like a week prior and it, it, until it was real, it didn't seem like, I wish we all had the foresight to be like, we should do a really good recorded version of this <laughs> at our opening night. So we have it for, you know, to share with everyone, but I don't know. It's nuts. So, uh, there's a move for especially a lot of nonprofit theaters to inviting an all black or all Asian audience for certain shows. Uh, having an all black queer audience, is that something you'd be interested in for all the Natalie Portmans? Absolutely. Um, I feel like, I mean, I think, what do we do? We did, we did two black theater nights and I know we did one queer theater night and they were planning a second. Um, and I mean, they were both really rewarding for different reasons. Um, and I feel like finding a way to do them at the same time is also an amazing thought just because, you know, I, I'm always writing plays that are about telling stories that are actually intersectional and that actually um, try to look at the ways that all your identities crisscross and overlap and that, like, you know, you are a person constantly in motion. Like, the world is going and you're going too, but you're on, like, eight tracks. Like, oh, I'm a woman. That's pretty difficult. Oh, I'm, I'm Black. Oh, that's pretty difficult. Oh, man, I'm queer. Wow, great. More to add to the pile. And I think that um, because I'm always trying to f- locate all of those identities in my characters and, like, talk about the ways that, you know, our lives are all of those things crashing against one another, the best my favorite audience members are always the people who are like me too. You know what I mean? Who, who understand what that is and don't go, is it about race? 
is it about this? And I'm like, uh, my whole life has been about everything. So you just need to get on board. That's all there is. <laughs> um, and I know at least with like black theater and I, some of the best responses I got were black men who came up to me and said, that was me up there or black women who was like, that was my big brother. I thank you for showing his heart. And I'd be like, yeah, I have three brothers. The only thing I know is how deeply they love me. Um, mm-hmm. And how often that isn't on stages because we don't actually care about black love. Um, and I also feel like on the <laughs> queer theater night, there was such like crazed hunger for some parts of the play. <laughs> like there are people who were just like, yeah, when the girl, likes you but she doesn't have the language and it's so annoying because you know and so you're both just doing this stupid dance and I'm like tell me about it <laughs> tell me about it and like I feel like the idea of a night where you could do all of that and ask, also ask all the questions simultaneously just sounds amazing um, because I feel like you know in the play Kiana you know she's a black queer girl and she loves the movies but you know She's watch, mostly watching those movies in the 90s and the early aughts. So what? She loves Julia Roberts. She loves Kirsten Dunst. You know, like, like who who's out there to choose from? And I mean, like, she'd probably choose very differently if you were living now. Like, I feel like if I were a 16-year-old girl now, I'd be like Zendaya all the way. Oh, my God. Have you seen <laughs> like, the list would be so long and it would be so diverse because we have so many more examples. But we didn't have him then. And so I feel like an audience who's the right age and also has all those intersecting identities is really exciting to me. I feel like I, our best audiences were queer, they were black and they were, you know, millennials. I do think I wrote a play for millennials and I don't, I don't have a problem with that. I think, I think it's sad that the majority of the theater audiences are millennials. I feel like there were a lot of people uh, older than that who were like, what's this really about? And I was like, Oh, You haven't had to juggle and negotiate things the way we've had to. And it is specific and it's messy and that's okay. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. that's all there is. And I also feel like like certain Gen Z people would be like, who cares about this? And I'd be like, (laughs) fair enough. You're a little ahead of me. That's fine. You think I'm tired. I get it. (laughs) That's real. Yeah. As I was reading it, I related to Kiana so much and I, I'm adopted and raised by white parents and just like surrounded by white culture growing up and like mm-hmm. was definitely in love, obsessed with so many white actresses. Uh, and, and do you think that that is something specific and potentially harmful to like queer black indigenous people of color specifically? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, uh, I think it's two things. So I, I, I feel like as a a black writer, I am always trying to be real about what I went through and provide opportunities for people who experience that same thing to see themselves represented. You know what I mean? Like I can't, I can't make it my job to fix the universe. I can only show the universe as I see it and ask it questions. You know what I mean? And so it is a, um, you know, I, I, I was a black girl who grew up in New Orleans in a predominantly black community um, like a blackity black community where the people have been black for forever and they don't tr- truly like for the most part don't care about white people but when they come around they're okay as long as they're not racist it was like that kind of place and it was um but that being said you know we're Americans we're people who consume media I come from my father's family and my mother's family were so um deeply invested in storytelling, even if it wasn't in a highfalutin educated way. You know, we were just always watching movies and TV shows and talking about them and breaking them down and saying whether they're good or not and rewatching them and referencing them. And it's, I think it, I didn't realize until much later that that was a specific upbringing, but I didn't ask questions of it then. When it was happening, that was what there was. Like it didn't, it wasn't weird that when somebody said, who's your favorite movie star? I was like, I mean, there are people who might disagree, but Michelle Williams was flawless in Dawson's Creek and every choice she's made since then has truly made me unbelievably happy. Like, that's not a weird thing to say. You know what I mean? But as a grown Black woman now, I know that whether that's a weird thing to say or not, it's unfortunate that I didn't have 
black names to grab onto in that way. And like, to be clear, I did, you know, like I was, I had an obsession with Whoopi Goldberg as a child. I had an obsession with a lot of, of Queen Latifah. Like I had obsessions with a lot of black women who were acting, but they weren't always given access to the movies that were the movies. You know what I mean? Like, have I seen ghosts 80 times? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Do I find ways to say you in danger girl as often as I can? Yes. But you know, it's one of those things where it's like, I love all those movies, but have you seen, uh, what was that one? My best friend's wedding. It's like, it's that movie is so terrible and like everything she's doing in it is so terrible. But Julia Roberts is so charming and she represents like exactly what acting was in that time mm. and how to be a star. And when you're a small, when you're like a queer girl in a small place and you just want to glom on to some beautiful woman, you like scroll through the channels and then that red haired, whatever <laughs> walks on screen and you just kind of go, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that looks powerful. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that, I think that that's a beautiful thing because I do think that people of color, and I think all people of color have this ability, right? Because we didn't have representation for so long, we can see ourselves in anything. You know, you show a white person a Tyler Perry movie and they're like, I don't feel represented. And I'm like, are you a human being? <laughs> not, you know what I mean? I feel like, uh, but you show a person of color any movie that they're not in and they go, that was lovely. You know what I mean? They, they are so much more open. And I think that that is beautiful because it gives you a chance to survive the sort of tyranny of whiteness. Mm -hmm. But I think that later you have to figure out what that really means for you. Like how can you continue to love these things, but also love yourself and recognize that it's okay if those things didn't include you. It's okay if you start to resent them. It's okay (laughs) if you want something better. Um, And that both things can exist. We don't need to erase who we were to become something else. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? I feel like I'm looking for a theater that is not revisionist um and that's revisionist on my own terms you know what I mean I think that I I'm like okay here's who I was and here's who I am and they're both real and we have to ask questions of that and we have to uh, allow ourselves to heal the things that we didn't even cause you know what I mean there's a version of this play where I just take the whiteness out and uh I think that if I did that, I wouldn't be me. (laughs) I would be like, yeah, this doesn't, this doesn't feel true. Yeah. If I do that, then I'm lying about what my bedroom wall looks like when I was 12. And the fact that I would go, well, Gwyneth Paltrow has great bone structure. Like that's just true. That's just who I am. And I want to talk about it because I know I'm not alone. Megan and I both had very large posters of Orlando Bloom as Legolas as, as teenagers. I want to write an essay about this. I want to write an essay about this. <laughs> yeah, we had like cardboard cutouts that were life size. This was like when we found this out about each other, we're like, oh, thank God. Like, wait, I did not have a cardboard cutout. I just had a poster. Oh, you no. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, then I was next level. Mine was like six feet tall. No, it's because he's the most beautiful man, the most beautiful man yeah. that has ever lived. I used to have a post, uh, like a cutout from a, uh, a calendar of him where he was lying in bed and he was pushing his hair out of his face. And I remember I was like, yeah, that's my kind of man. No. <laughs> he just looks extremely feminine. Mm-hmm. So feminine. <laughs> I think he was like wearing a white shirt on like a white bed. And that, yes. <laughs> yeah, I had that picture too. <laughs> and also on the Gwyneth Paltrow front, I probably watched Shakespeare in Love like once a week. <laughs> And like my sophomore year of high school. <laughs> and I'm like, why is this resonating so much? <laughs> no, pretty much anything that had any interrogation of gender or like a drag, anything like that. I was like, I like this. I wonder why. <laughs> it's progressive. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. The Legolas thing, like, please write that. I want to read that. Oh man. Um, so jumping over, we, uh, also got the chance to catch your digital reading with MCC last week. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about what it means to be the playwright in residence there this year, especially this year when things have been so different? Oh, it's been so interesting. Um, you know, that, that residency is special because it's specifically given to a playwright having their first production in the city 
um, with a theater. And so they give funds to the production itself and then they give funds to make you um, an employee of the theater for a year. So you have a desk, you know, you get paid biweekly like every other staff member. Wow. Um, you get access to health benefits. Awesome. It's pretty wonderful. And so it's been nice because I got to get in on the ground floor of every piece of my production and they really wanted my input. And I think one of the most fruitful um, positive ways that that happened was, um, you know, MCC does a lot of ancillary program around their shows. And so I, I got to do work with uh, Bold Women in Theater, which is a this great organization that organizes around Black women in the theater and about Black women's stories and how we amplify the Black women who work in the theater. And so in attachment to many of their productions, not just my own, um, they ran these uh, writing workshops um, where Black women could come in and it was always on a subject that was sort of attached to the play. So I did it for Blacks at MCC. I did it for another show. Um, and you came in and you sat with these women and you talked about that topic and your own writing. And then you did writing exercises together. And usually they did it on a night where the people could also see the show. So you actually spent many hours with these women just hanging out and talking about theater. It was always really really wonderful. Um, and I had to do a lot of things like that. I got to work with their youth company, um, doing talkbacks and talking with them about art and talking with them about where I'd come from and sort of been like this theater thing is not just a game. It can be your life. It can be a job. Hmm. Um, and recognizing that to really say that to any kid of color, you have to show them what it looks like. You know what I mean? It's not just go do it because where else if nobody else in their life is telling them they can do it, then like, why would they believe it? Mm -hmm. And so it was really wonderful to just sit and be like, yeah, no, I'm, I, yeah, I was you. <laughs> and now I do this. So like, if you want to go for it, um, that was wonderful. I loved working on the education side. Um, I also teach, so it was, it was a good fit for me. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I mean, with, when MCC, had to shut everything down and they were trying to figure out what they wanted to do. It was nice that I was one of the first calls um, because I was already in house. They already knew my voice um, and knew that whatever I had to say was something they wanted to hear. And it's really nice when you've sort of been so enmeshed in the web of a theater that you are actually a part of all the conversations. Mm -hmm. So when they reached out to be like, do you have a one act? I was like, absolutely not, but <laughs> I can probably write one. <laughs> So I did, and it was wonderful because we just sort of slapped it all together and got some great actors and had fun. And it wasn't, you know, there wasn't any of that institutional looking over the shoulder. Is it perfect? Is it none of that stuff? Because we already had the relationship and they were just like, yeah, here's your team. Go for it. Hmm. And we just went for it and it was done. And it was actually kind of lovely um, because I think we're all feeling isolated and strange right now. And though I think the screens don't always help. Um, I think in, in that moment it did because I mean, it was a me, a black woman, a black woman director and two black women in the cast. And when we hopped on the call, it was just those four faces cracking up, trying to tell this story, but also talking about this moment. Uh, and that was actually really, really, really wonderful and nice to be granted that space. Mm. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And I feel like, because there are, there are toe playwrights from residents all over the city, and it's different for everyone. Um, and sort of just like what you build with the, your particular company. Hmm. Um, but I've had, I've had a great time. <laughs> awesome. That sounds like such a great program. And you've done so many of these fellowships and residencies. Are there yeah. any that you feel like more fully supported your full identity? I think the best experiences that I've had, uh, the Lark. Um, I mean, the Lark is a special place. I think that because the Lark is a home for playwrights, that means whatever it means for you. Like, the Lark is one of those few places you can walk in with any kind of, any sliver of a possible play, any sliver of a possible thing that might be a play someday, and they just go, what do you need? Mm -hmm. What questions are you asking? What are the issues? What's the problem? And they really are so open to whatever that answer is. And if there's an audience you want there, they go, okay, okay, how do we find that? They don't 
they don't have an idea of what theater is that they then force on top of your play and on top of your identity. They say, who are you and what do you need? And I feel like every way, you know, in that bio, it says what, that I was the Van Leer, but I've also been a Rita Goldberg playwrights fellow there twice. Mm -hmm. I've also, I was in their monthly meeting of the minds, which is just like a monthly writers group. I've done, I've done playground, which is their sort of Tuesday night hangout (laughs) where you just work on scenes with directors and actors, you know, they do it all. And I feel like I've worked at so many levels there and they know my voice so intimately and they so support my voice wherever it is. Like the Lark is the place I go when I feel like my plays have been invaded by other people's voices mm-hmm. because I know at the Lark, they don't care about other people. They only care about me. And so they're like, is it the story you want to tell? And you have to figure out if that's the case. Um, and I, I love them. It's <laughs> the best way to put it. I, I, I hope it's my home forever. Um, and also I, I love Space on Rider Farm because I I think that their goal is to be a home for artists. And their definition of artist is complex because, you know, they started as a home for theater artists, but now all kinds of artists are there. You know, I've been there with novelists and essayists and poets and rappers. I've also been there with uh, organizers. I've been there with... Uh, Nonprofits, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a place where because the end goal is not putting up your work to make money and is instead about supporting your process, whatever that is, they really aren't obsessed with putting a label on you, which is great. I think that the problem with a lot of arts organizations is, is that they're like, Hey, welcome to our house and our work for us. <laughs> hey, welcome to our house. How do we bill you? How do we, oh, this okay. seems kind of gay, question mark. How do we get the gay? <laughs> oh, my God. Get out of here. I can't, <laughs> I can't do that. I am here to work on a play. And I actually think it's your job to know how to do all those things and not for my play to be, like, the ground upon which all of your other ancillary, like, inclusion goals stand. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't care. I'm trying to write a play. And you said you wanted to do it. So, like, how do we do this thing? I'm pretty sure you're supposed to have this expertise. And I think um, the great thing about a lot of fellowships and residencies is that they're a little, the right, the good ones are a little less focused on product and a lot more focused on the artists and the process. Um, but I say the Lark and Space are, like, my faves. They're my go-tos. Um, but I've had, I've had great experiences everywhere. I had a good experience with the civilians because they are just trying to share what they know about evidence based and like, you know, verbatim based work. They're like, we've done this weird thing for forever. Did you ever want to do a weird thing like this? And you say, yeah, I want to do this weird thing. And they go, cool, come on. I think the civilians is just another example of that kind of place. They're just like, what kind of artist are you and how can we support you being an artist? And I, and I, I always say to people like, where should I send this for which residency in which? And I'm like, find the place that is excited about you. I think that's really what you want. I think Sundance is another example. I think Sundance is also mm-hmm. the holy grail. And so it's one of those things where I'm always like, apply, apply, apply. Don't stop applying. Um, Cause I do think Sundance is wonderful. Um, I think they're pausing their theater program for a short while, just because how do you do it in COVID? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is also a wonderful place to just gather a group of brilliant people to work on your weird little theater experiment. Um, and I've been there when it's like straight plays. I've been there when there's a huge musical. I've been there when there's like a performance art piece by uh, and performing artists who always wear the mask and no one knows her identity. You know, <laughs> love that. <laughs> they kind of do it. A <laughs> little bit of everything. <laughs> With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, 
and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. I, I feel like, well, we feel like there's a cycle of... Um, playwrights continue to be like labeled emerging or like new, you know, like any type of synonym you can find for new (laughs) is what these programs are. Even after they've had years of working in the field and having their work produced, I don't have the answer to this, but I would love to hear any thoughts you have on how this system could be kind of restructured or in a way that is, um, I don't know, a little less, getting people stuck in limbo like it feels like now as as an audience member yeah i feel like i mean the real problem is that the word is being defined by too many different people um i feel like a few years back somebody really established one like an emerging playwright award i think it was like thomas bradshaw um and thomas bradshaw deserves awards been working for a long time is he an emerging playwright no and i mean i think even i feel like even he thought it was funny Mm-hmm. Um, but it is like a, there's a way that the theater is just obsessed with youth. There's a, it's an obsession with everybody having found you. Look what we found in a way that I'm like, Ugh, that feels like it's rooted in some strange colonialism. Mm-hmm. It's a label they can use for grant funding. It's a label that is based in a capitalist model. It's like, we have to use these kinds of words because they're hot button words. And if we apply for these kinds of grants and we say emerging, they go, oh, they're helping the babies. And then the money comes in and then you do the thing. But I feel like there's no agreed upon cutoff date for what that is. You know what I mean? I think Mm -hmm. if I do something now, I might still be considered an emerging playwright. Is that true? I don't know. I've had a lot of residencies and fellowships. I just had a New York production. I've been reviewed by the Times, whatever that means. And I feel like, I don't know, does that mean that I'm no longer emerging? I don't know. I think my voice is still emerging. Am I emerging uh, professionally? Probably not. I have friends who I love who are great writers who I think would maybe be considered still emerging. But I think that only really means like white people didn't know who you were. <laughs> like, we have that. It's just not real. Um I also think that the obsession with emerging playwrights means that mid-career playwrights, whatever that even means, like all these, all of these names are stupid, but I think it means that playwrights who are very, very good vanish. And the ones that stick around and continue to have large careers are the ones who've gotten a lot of accolades. You know what I mean? Like there's no period when Lynn Nottage wasn't writing plays and there shouldn't be because she is Lynn Nottage. Right. She should write plays forever. But there's also like, I always am like, who are all the people who started out at the same time as Lynn and where did they go? <laughs> yeah. um, and, and they're probably still writing. I probably know them and many of them are my friends and like, they're not considered emerging playwrights. They're also probably not considered mid-career playwrights and they're not, you know, Pulitzer Prize winners. And so like, where are their plays? And I'll tell you where they are. They're sitting on computers mm-hmm. because there's no fancy label to put on them to get grants, to do the thing, to fill rooms. It's like, I think, I think the label doesn't mean anything, but it means a lot financially. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know. I, it's just a real, I think it's a flaw in the structure of how we do the thing. A person should just be a playwright, but if you're trying to call them emerging, you're assuming or hoping they're in their twenties or thirties, but I know emerging playwrights in their sixties. <laughs> so I don't think it works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You So you write for TV and theater. Is there a medium that you prefer and how does your process change for each of those? Hmm. Um, I think the theater is my great love. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'll always prefer it. I think that I don't see a world where that changes um, because I I love actors. I think I got into the business of theater because I love actors and I love the moment where you're sitting in the rehearsal room and they're making choices and your heart opens wide because they're making choices about this tiny little thing that came from the center of your soul. You know what I mean? And then they get it. They understand it. And you didn't have to explain. Mm-hmm. They just do. And you're like, oh, you're my friend forever now. <laughs> um, I love I love that magic. And I think that that magic is about bodies and space and breath. 
and us all sort of agreeing to play make believe in the dark. Like, I think that you can't, you can't replicate that anywhere. Um, and I'll, I will always crave it. Um, I think that the thing that is magical about TV though, and about filmmaking, um, in general is there's an ability to be so exacting and to craft a thing that is, uh, has as many hands, if not a thousand more, and like millions upon millions more dollars. But I do think it's, uh, there's, because we're in sort of this new golden age of TV, especially, there's so much more flexibility in storytelling. And there's, you know, there's been such a cultural shift happening out in LA and the way that they tell stories and people being called out for stuff, you know, like they had a full me too movement, whatever that is. <laughs> I keep calling, I keep saying whatever that is. Like, I don't believe anything. I do. I just, I don't really trust labels. I feel like it's, That's some, fair. I just think it's something from academia that is being thrust upon us. But I, um, I, I think, uh, they, have had to be, they've been forced to answer some pretty big questions, you know, like they have a Harvey Weinstein and a Bill Cosby and a, and like we have people who do bad things that we don't name. And so it's like, uh, they've had to adjust the way that they approach story. They've also had far more examples and had to adjust how they think, you know, 10 years ago, they would have been like, I don't know, a movie with an Asian cast. I don't, I don't know. And now anybody who says that, you can just wave a flag and be like, hello, hello, let us talk about Crazy Rich Asians. And if you don't want to talk about that because you think it's not highfalutin enough, let's talk about the farewell. Like, there's just a list of things you can just wave around there. And people have to go, we do like dollar dollar bills. Um, (laughs) Like that? Do you have anything Asian? (laughs) The way that they attack can be a little oof. But um, I do think that they they both see it as an artistic form and also as a business. And so if you can prove that there are people out there like you, they're like, well, if there's money to be made, let's do it. And they're a little less like, but how do we find that? They, they put less roadblocks in front of you, I found. Um, in the conversations that I have, people get excited that I want to speak to a specific audience and that I want to tell a story that I don't think has been out there. They go, what do you want to write, T.A.? And I'm like, I don't know, queer back ladies who are like really sad. And they're like, that sounds interesting. Nobody's told us that. And they really mean it and they really are listening. Hmm. And in the theater, they're like, what do you want to write? And I'm like, queer black ladies. And they're like, hmm. And they move on to someone else. And I'm like, well, why did you ask if you didn't actually care? Also, why did you bring me here and give me free readings if you don't actually understand or know how to do what I want to do? You know, it's a... There's this, uh, I feel like I just deal with a lot more real talk in LA and I like that. Cause if people aren't interested, they're just not interested. They're like, we're going to pass. And I'm like, thanks for not wasting my time. Mm. Yeah. Let's move on. Like, they're just like, either they want to do it or they don't want to do it. And they're not going to play a song and dance to try to like wine and dine you or prove that they're in the in club. Um, they're just doing it or not doing it. And I, I like that clarity. I also like that. You know, my family can see the things that I do on TV and like point to it and go, see, she does write. They don't just go, she's like an E8, I think. Um, like, <laughs> they like can say, my sister wrote on this thing and I can be like, oh, I did. That's me. That's my name. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I, I, I just think, you know, in the theater, you write alone. And eventually when it becomes a production or whatever it is, you have friends, but. You do it all alone. And in, in TV, you're always on a team. You do every bit of that with other people. And I think that that has been nice. It's been actually a welcome part of my life. Um, and I, uh, I'm i going to be honest, I freaking love TV. I know there are players who work in TV and they're like, it's a paycheck. And I, I love it. I love it in a nerdy way. And I have my whole life. So um, it was always sort of meant to be. I won't pretend that I'm like... I just treat it as a paycheck because that's not true. Mm-hmm. Once I have the job, I really believe in it and I want to tell a good story and I want, I can't wait till the next job. You know, I just try to make sure that taking the next job doesn't mean that I'm leaving the theater because that would be sad. <laughs> you recently tweeted that, cause I'm just creeping on your Twitter, um, that 
that you've been rethinking uh kind of the relationship with how we treat plot and theater mm-hmm. and i'd love to hear a little more about kind of what that refocusing means and what you're thinking yeah um i don't know i think i think all the natalie portman's was an interesting experience for me because it was so rewarding and there are so many ways that i worked really hard on that play being producible you know what i mean I knew that the Natalie Portman of it all would get a lot of white people excited. And I was like, great, okay, that'll open the door, even though that's not why it's there. But if that's what's going to happen, that's what's going to happen. Um, but I also was like, I, I, I know that in all these development processes and all these ways that we're building the play, people are going to be like, but how does A lead to B and B to C? Is Kiana sad or not sad? How do we make her happy? How do we make her more sad? That, like, we were trying to build a narrative that did the thing that, you know, the little pyramid did that you learned in English class and that Aristotle talked about in the poetics. You know, how do we put the character up in a tree and throw rocks at them until they come down or don't come down or die? Whatever it is. How do you write, you know, death of a salesman? What's CA's death of a salesman? Number one, I'm never going to write that because poor Linda. But also, like, (laughs) seriously. (laughs) Also, I just think. I think it's, you know, and I'm not the first person to say this, right? Like, I feel like Fornes talked about this. I feel like any great woman or queer writer who's worked has been like, is all of drama just rooted in, like, the male orgasm? I think so. And I, I, you know, since sort of the years when I was writing all the Nelly Portman's and a few other plays, um, I've started to write different plays. And I like them so much more. And it's because they're not plays that are about like, you know, the story going up to a point and then coming down the plateau. They're more like, here are these women in a room arguing and they're talking in circles because they're all afraid. And because the ways that, you know, so many people who aren't the norm, you know, so many people who aren't like, you know, I don't know, cis, hetero, white men. Like, I feel like, you have to lead a life where even if you really want something and your goal or your objective is to get it, like the world doesn't care if you get it. So actually your your path is a lot more windy. You're like reaching for the apple and then a witch walks up and goes, that's my apple. And you go, well, where do I get one? And she goes, I don't know. And I don't care. So then you got to like settle for an orange for a while. And then eventually you go, oh, an apple tree. And then you go towards that. And some troll is like, don't you touch my apples. It's like a, I feel like life for anybody really is actually far more circular and complicated. And so I've started, I've been in plays where like things change and they don't change for these outright, you know, because the man put his foot down and said, if you don't give me this job, I'm going to kill myself. Like that's just not, that's just not how my newer plays are working. It's like four women agree to be in a cabin together and halfway through you realize they're all in love and that's horrible. Because none of them know how to make choices. And so they're having the same conversations again and again, and it's unbearable. And I could change that to try to make it the perfect play. Or I could tell the truth, because that's who me and my friends are. Like those two people have loved one another forever. Are they ever going to say it? Probs not. Like, these two people had a toxic relationship once, and though they're not together anymore, haha, the toxic relationship is still there. Are they going to change it? Probs not. And that, like, you can tell a story that actually embraces that change is not inevitable. In fact, sometimes it's impossible. Um, And that is its own kind of drama. And I think that the more we try to, like, embrace those other forms, like circles and, like, I don't know, whatever they are, like a play that's a puddle. (laughs) (laughs) Like, the more we do that, I actually think that theater will be more a theater of the people. Um, yeah, I, the the play of mine that does that, that does the sort of male thing the most is a play about men in power. So that makes sense. Like, I wouldn't change that play, but I definitely wouldn't do that with my beach play that's about women and ponies. Like, that doesn't make any sense. No, they need to just cry and be horrible. <laughs> like, <laughs> fine with that. And, like, I am after a theater that is also interested in that. And that is interested in taking those risks because they actually want to be representative of all people and not just like one group of people who used to tell us how everything should be and still do. There's no use to. Um, and so like, how do we, and I just feel like my favorite writers do that. One of my favorite writers in all of New York city is Charlie Yvonne Simpson. And Charlie is 
I think she's a goddess of the unsayable and the unknowable. Her plays add up to these moments that sort of like take the breath out of my body and then make me go, that's me. And it's not me at all. But there is something that she knows about change that is just the opposite of what I was taught change in storytelling was. But it is more true. And like that should be on stage. And we should be encouraging people to do that. And there are people who have. I think Mac Wellman has probably done that for generations. I think I think Paula Vogel is after a theater that is unbelievably complex. Um, mm. Aaron Courtney, one of my favorite playwrights, I think she writes plays that are filled with like really tiny, horrible explosions. I don't know how else to explain mm. it. It's like you got like a like those little dolls where you open the doll and there's another doll and another doll. Yeah. <laughs> And I think that that's a great play, but it's like, it's not what they taught me uh, in school. <laughs> right. Yeah. So we have a section every episode called Queering the Canon. Mm. So what play would you want to rewrite to make it queer or queerer? I've always, I've always wanted to do, and I don't know how to do it because you'd have to dramatically change the story, but I've always wanted to do a, a version of uh, Antigone. Um only because the first production I saw of Antigone had Creon played by a woman. Um, just because that was what they had in program, you know, it was just mostly mm-hmm. women. And I think like one of the best actors in the class year was a woman. Like it's always a woman. Don't quote, I mean, quote me on that. Definitely quote <laughs> me on that. Um, but uh, I don't know. There was something about the, the begging, <laughs> something about her demand these are, I deserve this, I deserve this, and Creon being like, I don't know, I don't care. I think there's like, there's something in that. And I feel like I, I and so many woman-to-woman unions, there's like a, uh, there can be such beauty, but also such like impassioned rage. And it's pretty hot. So I, <laughs> I love to find a version of that. I don't know what it is. Like if I could take, like I imagine Creon as like bet from the L word. Like I think that oh, that God. would just be. That so and everything. Is yes. I think yeah. it would be juicy because it's about all the things that Antigone is about. And it's still, you know, the follow up to its, to the trilogy and all those things are still true, but there's a secret. I love when people are arguing about something, but like all the queer people in the audience go, this is not about what they think it is. <laughs> yeah, I want to do that. I don't know how I do it and I don't know how I make it just, I justify it, but someday. <laughs> oh, I love that. So Holly and I both really love fanfic. We've heard that you uh, used to write some queer fan fiction in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, and similar to this Antigone uh, reboot, like, why is it important, do you think, to kind of uh, to write or recreate characters that are queer in a world that you're familiar with? Like, what what's the power in that? <laughs> I think it's maybe like, for me, I think it was taking back my desire. Um and sort of taking back uh, or just filling the world out with me. It's almost like you saying to the original creator, I love you so much. You forgot me. Um, and I really respect what you built, but I'm just going to add myself over here. Is that okay? I think it's a, um, and for me, it was, a, I think the best way for any writer to learn how to write is to, to write what they love. You know, if you love August Wilson, write back bad August Wilson for a while. And then eventually you'll find yourself. You know, if you love Albie, attempt that. I mean, you will fail, but attempt it. (laughs) And eventually you'll find yourself. And I think that we are willing to say that about, you know, I mean, I just said August Wilson and Edward Albee, right? But like, we aren't, I mean, why shouldn't we also be saying that about J.K. Rowling? Why shouldn't we also be saying that about anybody who gave us something? And then later you're like, oh, either you didn't include me or, oh, you might be terrible. Whichever thing it is. Right. It's like, it's, or both. Yeah. Or both. Yeah. It's almost like like reclaiming your space or like reclaiming your time. It's almost like a, it's a brilliant way, especially for young people, I think, to legitimize your own desire. It's like, I really like this love story, but also I, the way I experience desire and love is different and I want to figure it out. So I'm going to paint it onto this heteronormative thing 
and see what happens. And I think in the process, you ultimately forget the heteronormative thing and you've built something that's like queer and lovely and yours. You've made it and you can share it. I mean, I was sharing in like all kinds of online networks and people of all walks of life were reading them and being like, I really loved your spatially story. But <laughs> like it's just like, there's no, it gives you access to a community of people who say, yes, me too. And I think that that's all we're ever after. I think it's so, so, so important and should be encouraged and should be recognized as some of the first ways that a lot of people write or create, especially queer people. I think it's like so, it is such a, such a, such a queer space and that people are only really just beginning to talk about. Yeah. Outside of theater, do you have any queer culture indulgences you want to share? I have so many, but I mean, (laughs) my, my, my one that I like, I, they just released a trailer for this TV show I love uh, called Winona Earp. Yes. Um, <laughs> and I like, I swear it was my birthday. I was like, today is my birthday. Here they are. All of them that I love. Like it was a, and I mean, I think it's because it's like a throwback. I don't, not enough people watch it, but I feel like it's like today's Buffy. And, oh yeah. Um, it's clever. It's campy. It's gross. I love it. I love it. You know, there's a queer couple that's been there since episode one. When does that happen? And it doesn't seem like anybody's going to get murdered. Um, and I, and I, I love any show that is hyper queer, but also about, even in the ways that it's not necessarily about queer relationships, it sort of queers our idea of women. And I think that that is a show about sisterhood and about the ways that women love one another in a lot of different angles. I think that showrunner specializes in that. I watched her other show, Lost Girl, which had the same thing. I think she's interested in the ways that women love and putting that on screen. And I'm like, I'm so here for it. I also think that she writes really interesting men. Um, <laughs> I'm like, who these little butterfly men that she's found? They just like, <laughs> buy category in the best way. And I feel like, you know, all the men I've loved defy category. Um, mm. And yeah, I think Gwynona Earp is probably my closest. I have so many, but that's the most honest one today. And then do we, do we have a recommendation for um, queer gives, like a, someone that you would want to shout out, people go check out and donate to? Uh, there are so many. And I also feel like in this moment, um, a lot of like, you know, black specific, um, LGBT orgs have been coming up and I, I, I feel like I've shouted them in the past and there's so many and they're like BuzzFeed lists about them now. So I'm going to go throwback and I'm going to use, uh, one, an organization that I've loved for a long time, uh, Sage. I just think that as a culture and as a people, we forget about the aging. And one of the things I love about Sage is that they're thinking about queer people as they age and about how some queer people as they age are all alone and they need community activism. They need activities and love and money and funds and support because they don't always have like that definition of family that we assume. Um, and it's an organization that builds that and respects that. And I, I mostly know the NYC chapter, but they are national. So CA, how can people find you on, on the interwebs? I obviously found you on Twitter already, but please share with everyone else. <laughs> For sure. Um, I'm everywhere. Uh, my handle is CAJohnso90. So it's CAJohnson without the N, 90. Um, I'm on Instagram with that as well as Twitter. Um, and I have a website, CAJohnson.info. I update it sometimes. Uh, but you can definitely just read about my plays there. Yeah, and I feel like my email is all over the internet. So, I don't know, hit me up with your weird stuff. I may or may not respond. I hate email, but I'm here. I'm out. (laughs) Thank you so much for being here with us today. This is awesome. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at ThesisOnJoan. You can email us with your queer culture indulgences, any theater recs, or anything else you'd like to share at thesisonjoan at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review us, and share us with your friends. Come back for more interviews, fun queer content, recommendations, and eventually discussions on live theater. Holly, can I sneak in the fanfic question here? I feel like it relates. Sure. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So 
Holly and I both really love fanfic. Maybe me a little more so because I'm really pushing for this question right now. (laughs) Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.